0: Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 21, and once again this evening we have the privilege of opening, opening our Bibles to this part of Scripture, which was really a joy to speak on because of the great hope that it contains for God's people. Our text this evening is verses 1 through 8, and we're going to spend most of our time in verse number 2 this evening, and then in the following messages we're going to talk for quite some time about the subject of heaven. You know, I enjoyed watching the choirs. They were singing their song tonight, one of those peppy songs, because as they're singing, they're all going like this. Well, they're going to sprout wings any moment and just fly away to heaven. Uh, That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, if you'll look in your Bibles at Revelation 21, beginning in verse number 1, the Apostle John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is athirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't often preach messages about heaven. And I I suppose if I were to opened this discussion up tonight and say, well, what is Pastor? what are Pastor Smith's shortcomings? That there'd be a lot of things that you could talk about, and one of them might be uh, that I don't speak a lot about heaven. I was speaking to a preacher, a friend of mine, oh, about a year or so ago, I think, and he was telling me how that he was uh, just starting in a new church, and what they had decided to do was to Uh, do a different model for church. What they would do is he would set a chair in the middle of all the people, and then they would begin a discussion uh, about Scripture rather than preaching a message. And I thought about that. First of all, that's not the way that you are supposed to do it. That's not uh, according to the Scripture. Preaching is not a dialogue between me and you there has to be an authoritative teacher of God's Word, and that's why you have somebody stand in a pulpit. So this is not the time for roundtable discussion. But I would say that if I decided to open this thing up, that that would be a terrible thing to do because I know that you would have a lot to talk about concerning my shortcomings. So I'm not going to give you an opportunity to do that. I do understand this, though, that probably one of my shortcomings is not preaching enough about heaven. Now, as I look back on the times that I preached about heaven, I find that most of my sermons concerning the subject have been at funerals. And so unless you're planning to die very soon, then you probably won't hear me preaching a sermon about heaven. But I realize that that's probably or is the wrong thing to do because um, I, I guess because I'm so concern that preachers preach so little about hell or even mention the subject that maybe I try to make up for that by mentioning hell a lot of times as Jorge knows I mentioned that mentioned that a lot of times. And I, I maybe sometimes fail to realize that what people need is some encouragement. What we need is to think about heaven, to think about the promise that God has made to us, about this wonderful place we're going to go. And so it's a good thing for us to talk about heaven. We need to be reminded of it. So in the next few weeks, we're going to take all these past few years that I haven't talked about heaven, and we're going to talk a lot about heaven. And you're going to learn what I know about it, which... uh, is not beyond what Scripture has to say, I promise you that. Now, as I mentioned last week, uh, or week before, I guess it was, that heaven appears many times in the Scripture. But as far as explanations about what heaven is like, what we have here in Revelation 21 and 22 are the Bible's most extensive words about heaven. Now, thinking about heaven and being heavenly-minded, changes your perspective on life of life in this earth. I mean, it really should change your perspective because if we thought more about heaven rather than the things that we enjoy here, uh, we wouldn't be as concerned as much about things that we have here. When the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, encouraged him to fight as a good soldier of Christ. And Paul talked about all of the hardships that he would encounter as a minister for Christ and certainly, Paul had been through those things. He labored much for the gospel, and he endured a lot of different things in his life, even spent, uh, as we know, a good deal of time in prison, and then finally was executed for his faith. But he wrote to Timothy, in the very last letter that he penned towards the end of his life and he talked about his purpose for enduring these hardships. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there you see Paul's driving desire. It was to bring people to salvation in order that they might be in heaven with Christ. And so he labored constantly towards that end. And he was willing to give up any of the comforts that he had in this life. He knew this life is quickly gone. Everything that we have here passes away. So he never really had any second thoughts or any regrets for all of those things that he went through in order to bring people to Christ so that they might be able to be in heaven. Now, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 1, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, and there he's talking about his own body, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul was truly a heavenly-minded person, and that changed his whole perspective about his purpose in life. And I think that that may be the key to what's missing for many of us, and, and why we are down a lot of times, why we're unhappy, we don't think enough about heaven. And we live as if heaven doesn't really exist. And so, consequently, we fall short of doing the work that God has called us to do in this world. And I think that all of us are in that, are in that boat. I mean, it's good for us to talk about heaven and get ourselves reoriented towards that promise that God has given. It's a promise of eternity, And so we come upon this opportunity in its next few weeks, perhaps in one way fortuitously, because uh, this is where our verse-by-verse study leads us. I mean, it's just we have to talk about it because this is where we've come to in our study verse-by-verse in the book of Revelation. But I think there's probably a better explanation for that than to say we come to it fortuitously in a verse-by-verse study. Rather, we come to it because this is the time that God knows that we need it. This is the time when God knows we need the encouragement, and he plans these things out. I mean, God knows what I'm going to preach months and months and, well, even years, even before I was born, he knew what I would be saying on this very night. So I think we come to a study of heaven at a very opportune time, at a good time uh, when people are having a lot of trouble, when there's a lot of, of, of heartache, a lot of things that are going on that were brought to this subject. So we find here then, in these next couple of chapters, the Bible's most extensive description about heaven. And here heaven is opened up so that the Apostle John was allowed to see things that natural eyes simply cannot see. And although this is the best explanation that we have of heaven, we don't really have the the complete picture here. We have some idea. And and John gives us some way that we can understand a little bit about what heaven will be like. As one author said, I was just looking a few minutes before I came into the service tonight, one author said that what we read here is, is everything that we read here is true. This is going to happen. Nothing less than this. Heaven is going to be a lot more than this, but it's not going to be anything less than this, what we see in Scripture. Now... In the first verse, we notice that John saw the new heaven and the new earth, and we talked about this as the remake of creation. And the new heaven that it's talking about in verse number 1 is not heaven in the sense of the third heaven. That's the place where God lives. It's not the place where departed saints that have left this life are now living. But in the first verse of Revelation 21, heaven there refers to the atmosphere, and it refers to the stellar heavens. And the earth that he sees is a new earth that God has completely remade. He's created again out of nothing. And this earth is a recreated earth because John says here, the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And we spent some time in the last message dealing with the question of whether this is a remodeled earth or is it a completely new creation. And there are good arguments on both sides. And I don't think that we can be uh, so dogmatic to say that we absolutely know the answer to that question. I think one answer is a little bit better than the other. But regardless of whether we believe it's a remodeled earth, that God uses the same substance to make another earth, or whether he recreates it out of nothing, is really not that important to us. The most important thing that we understand is that the curse has been completely lifted. The curse of sin is a thing of the past. Now, the old earth was one of corruption, and that is in the past at this point that John sees, and it's never going to be resurrected again. And the memories of the old earth and things that happened on the earth, I think, are going to be wiped clean. Now, we'll get to that a little bit more when we get to verse number four, and we'll talk about that as an aspect of the joy that we have in heaven, that we're not going to be saddled with all of the old memories that we had in this life, anything that could be a cause to drag us down or to make us have negative thoughts about anything, because heaven is a positive place. Heaven is a place of worship, a place where the mind is completely free to think about all the good things that God has done and to recognize and understand those in a better way. So nothing is going to be in our minds that could possibly mar the enjoyment of heaven. Well, we're ready to move into verse number 2 and this remarkable aspect of the new creation, which is the radiant capital of heaven. Verse number 2 says, "And And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I've read these verses many, many times in my Christian life. I go back to the time when, when I was very young and growing up into my teenage years that at least three times I heard my dad preach an entire series on the book of Revelation. And I was always interested in these particular verses— Now, I know there are a lot of people that when they come to the study of Revelation, the thing that they're really interested in is the tribulation. And they're really interested in the Antichrist and the things that he's going to do when he appears. And if you remember, going all the way back to the beginning of of the series, I said that we need to understand that this is the revelation of the Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. Now, he comes along in the story here, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. So I have never really been overly interested in what the Antichrist is going to do, I mean, I've been interested, of course, because the Bible tells us about it, but I'm not overly interested in that. I'm not overly interested in the tribulation. The kinds of things that really hold my attention are these kinds of passages, like we read right here, when we're finally going to see the King of Kings, and we're finally going to come to the place that God has promised that we're going to be. Heaven revealed. That's what I'm really interested in. And as we think about this, we, we sort of have to just really wonder what it must have been like when these thoughts first came to John's mind, when he was first allowed to see this. If we could read his thoughts at that very moment when he saw this beautiful city. Now, as you know, the previous chapters have been filled with sin. They've been filled with bloodshed. Horrible catastrophes are... In these other chapters, we've talked about the lake of fire and spent six messages talking about that, besides the other times that it's mentioned that we had to talk about hell during the book of Revelation. And I can imagine that after seeing all of those things, that John was really ready for some good news. So he was shown the king of kings... And when we studied that particular part, when Christ in the second coming comes back and there uh, John was able to see him and he sets up his kingdom, that was a time of exceeding joy for John. I'm sure that it was. I mean, he was in exile by a wicked human government and so to think that the king of kings was going to come and deliver him from that that must have been just an awesome thought for John and so we have called that that particular part the apex that's really the high point of revelation as far as earth's history is concerned and we talked about how it's not really the creation of man, it's not the coming of Christ in the first advent, it's not the cross. All of those things are important, but the culmination of it all is when the king of kings himself comes to this earth and sets up his kingdom. That's the apex of world history to that point. Well, if, if you want to call uh, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the viewing of the king of kings, the apex or the everest, of the book of Revelation, then you would surely have to say that when we come to this verse, we're at K2. And I don't know if you understand what I mean by that, but we're at, at least at K2 when we come to this particular verse in, in Revelation. So John sees this city, and he describes it a little bit later. It's hard to imagine what those first thoughts must have been. He had to have been stunned when he saw the city called the New Jerusalem. And I want to make a point of that, first of all, this evening, that it, it's not the old Jerusalem. It's not the historical city of Jerusalem that he sees. This is not urban renewal of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, one of the highlights of my life was the trip that Gary and I made a few years ago. 2008, we went to Israel. And I have uh, been blessed in my younger years to have the opportunity to travel to different places in the world And uh, I enjoy doing that, and I've enjoyed the opportunity of seeing many different things. Long ago, in a land far, far away, I used to have some money. I don't have it anymore, but I used to have some money, and so I could afford to travel. Well, I had the money to do this, but one thing that I was never really interested in doing, I was never interested in visiting Israel. I'd always... Uh, Had a a negative opinion about people going to Israel because I I thought, well, the reason they're going is because they need some kind of closure for their faith. They need to see the sights. They need to be close to that. They need to have their faith increased in some way or another just by going to the places that are in the Bible and seeing those things, and they really need that to prop up their faith. I mean, I even had a friend that went to Israel, and he took part in... Uh, one of the mass baptisms that they have at the Jordan River. And he came back to me, and and he just talked about the spiritual excitement that he had and how exuberant that it was for him to be baptized in the Jordan River. Well, that's something that I would never do because I think it demeans the purpose of baptism. It takes away the purpose. Uh, It's not even a real baptism at all. So I, I thought about people who do things like that, and I just didn't have much interest in it but i have to tell you that i was honestly uh, not prepared for what it would be like to visit israel at the time that gary invited me to go it was a right time the timing was right he was gracious enough to uh, contribute part of it so to make it more affordable for me to go and so i really got psyched up about that trip but i wasn't prepared for the impact that it would have on me Now, of course, going to Israel doesn't make you more saved. And it didn't make me more saved, but it did make the Bible come alive to me. It came alive to me in the sense that when I preach and when I read about certain places, I can visualize those things in my mind and, and just think about the very places that the Bible talks about. And when I came back from Israel, we did our presentation, and I told you then that the thing that most impressed me was the Sea of Galilee. It was the day that we were able to spend in a, in a, in a boat going across uh, out into the Sea of Galilee. And just to think about that Jesus saw those same things. The apostles saw those same things. And then going in and out of those little villages and towns that around the Sea of Galilee, you can imagine that as I've been preaching through the book of Matthew, that that's taken on a whole new meaning for me talk about those very same cities and the miracles that Jesus did in those places. So the Sea of Galilee was something that was very impressive to me. But I suppose the second most impressive sight, and there are a lot of things to see in Israel, and you know people have their favorite things, but I think seeing the old city of Jerusalem was one of the highlights of the trip as well. Now, the city that you see there today is not the city of Jesus' time. I mean, the city now, the old city there, dates back only to about the 16th century. But it really doesn't make a difference because you sort of get a flavor of what it must have been like in this bustling city with people coming from all different areas, the small city streets and all those kinds of things. And it's very interesting. And you can, in fact, go underneath the city today, and you can see some of the walls and some of the houses that were in, in existence at the time of Jesus. You can see that. And you can also see foundations of, of certain places as well that are date, that date all the way back to the time of Jesus. Now, the point that I'm trying to make here is that the city that comes down from heaven is not a remade Jerusalem. It's not the old historical city. It's not been transformed into the capital of heaven. Neither is it the old part of the city that's known as the city of David. Now, that is also a place that you can visit in Jerusalem. It's outside of the old city walls, but there's the place that David originally went to. And and that's where David made his capital as he became the king of Israel. Now, the city of David is the oldest part of that city. It's still in existence. And all the way back to the time of David, when he first came into, that, into Jerusalem, uh, renamed it, and then made it a, a, a place where God was worshipped, Jehovah God was worshipped, since that time, Jerusalem has always been called the holy city. It's a city that's been set apart to God. It's a sanctified place. Jerusalem is different from any other place in all of the world because it's God's city. And the Bible times, no matter where you were, if you were going to Jerusalem, you may remember this. We talked about it. You're always going up. Now, when we talk about going down south, uh, going to L.A., we're always going down. We're going down south. And when you're going to Seattle, you're always going up. So we look at north and south as up and down. But it didn't matter where you were. Uh, around Jerusalem east west north south doesn't make any difference you're always going up and one of the reasons is it's Higher than most of the surrounding landscape. But that's not the real reason they talked about going up to Jerusalem. They were always going up because Jerusalem has always had this thing about being above everything else. This is where the holy temple mount was. This is where the people of God live. This is God's city. So you're always thinking of Jerusalem as being a higher place. Well, it's holy. It's set apart to God. And I can give you some scripture on that in both the Old and the New Testaments. It's called the Holy City. Isaiah 52 verse 1 says, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the Holy City. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now, that verse there is actually referring to the millennial kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, Jerusalem is referred to that way when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It says, then the devil taken them up un- into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. And then we'll give you one more here. This is from the book of Revelation, which we've studied this verse already. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. And there was given me a reed likened to a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and then that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. So looking at it that way, the the historical city of Jerusalem is the holy city of God. But there's a problem. There's a real problem. And that is, there is corruption in Jerusalem. God said this through the prophet Jeremiah, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants as Gomorrah. Now, remember that when God wants to show the the ultimate, the worst types of wickedness, the reference point is always Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are two cities that were completely destroyed by God, but with fire and brimstone. And if you look at Jerusalem today, you find a place that is corrupt. It's a place that's been overrun with Islam. For instance, on the Temple Mount. I have a picture if you'd show that to us there. Uh, This is probably a familiar picture to those of you that have seen aerial shots of Jerusalem because this place stands out. This is the dome of the rock. It's a a mosque that's right on the Temple Mount. And there's another mosque there. It's called the Temple or the uh, Mosque of Al-Aqsa. And that's also on the Temple Mount. But I took another picture right after this. And this is a Group of school children that are right there on the Temple Mount as well. And this is uh, children from an Islamic school. So, there in the, in the holy Temple Mount of Jerusalem, it's overrun with this false religion, with this corruption that's there. And we know that beyond the time that we're living in right now, that, that Jerusalem is going to be taken over by the Antichrist, he, he's going to desecrate the city. He'll, he'll build a new temple there, and then he'll install himself as God. In first, or second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So eventually, the city of Jerusalem will have a new designation that it's not any longer called the Holy City. When the two witnesses are killed, and this is what we read a little bit from uh, Revelation chapter 11 just a minute ago, the Scripture says, after they're killed, the dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So there again, you see Sodom, and you see Egypt. That's always a type of bondage of sin. And so the city that comes down from from heaven can't have anything to do with his historical city. Jerusalem is to be destroyed, and that's because of the terrible desecration of sin that you find in the Old Testament, like we read in the book of Jeremiah. It's because of the time when Jesus lived... And what did they do in Jerusalem? They crucified the king of kings. It must be destroyed because of the corruption that exists today. It's overrun, as I said, with Islam, and it's a war-torn area. And then because of the sin that's coming in the future with the Antichrist, Jerusalem is corrupted, and so it has to be destroyed. And I think it's also worth mentioning that this is not the Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom. Now then, uh, it will be renewed. Jerusalem will be renewed. A glorious new temple will be built there. Christ will rule from the holy city during that time. And so certainly, the new Jerusalem has new character, and it will be holy because of Christ's presence there. But the old city can't survive. Even the city of the millennium can't survive because the curse is not completely lifted from the earth at that time. As we know, there's going to be death during the millennium. There, there will be some sin, even though that uh, God overrules it in a, in a special way then. But Jerusalem must be destroyed. And whether you take the position that it's burned up along with the rest of the world, or you take the position it must be destroyed on, and then a new recreated earth comes, in one way or another, that city has to pass away. And so when John sees the city come down from heaven, this is a completely new place, a new place of God, a new city. Now that brings us then to this aspect of it, that it is the heavenly city. The city is not heaven itself. The Bible never gives us dimensions of heaven. We don't know how big that heaven is. I can't even imagine what it, how big it's going to be. What the Bible does give us, the, the dimensions of the city of the New Jerusalem. And if you go down to verse number 16, you'll find there that this is a city that's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. Now, you're going to have to wait till we get to that verse before I give you further an explanation of it, but that's the dimensions of this great city. So, the new Jerusalem is not heaven itself. It's in heaven, and it comes down out of heaven. Now, a few minutes ago, I was talking about being heavenly-minded, and at least as far back as Abraham, there were people that knew about this city that was in heaven, Now that's a remarkable statement because Abraham was far removed from any prophecies that you read later in the Old Testament about the New Jerusalem or about the Millennial Kingdom or anything else. He's also a long way off from the time of David when David made uh, Jerusalem the capital city. So Abraham was aware of this. And so the Bible says that he just walked around from place to place. He moved his tent wherever he needed to go. He was a nomad who was unsettled in this world. And so he was always living as if he was in a strange country. And that's because the world was not his home. He was looking for this heavenly city, looking for the place, the Bible says, whose builder and maker is God. And that's the same sense that Paul wrote the passages where he talks about citizenship in heaven. He speaks of it as a place that's longed for, a place that's hoped for for Christians. Uh, It's to live in that holy city. And I also believe that the holy city, uh, this new city, is a place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. Uh, Jesus told the disciples in that great passage of John 14... He said let not your heart be troubled you believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and receive you unto myself that where i am there you may be also so we can think of the new jerusalem as a city that is being prepared but that doesn't mean that it's not always been in existence Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verse 26, "...but Jerusalem which is above is free and is the mother of us all." Now, Paul there speaks as if this city is already in existence. It's up in heaven, and Jesus is preparing it. He's preparing it for all the redeemed that will believe in him, uh, all of them that are redeemed by the death of Calvary. And it's difficult for us to think of that in terms of time, But that's what Jesus is doing. He's making room for everybody who believes. Well, that would bring up another question. The Scripture says here that it is like a city that's adorned as a bride for her husband. Now, the obvious reference there is to the bride of Christ. And the inhabitants of this city will be those that are in the bride of Christ. Now, don't be confused because the city itself is not the bride. It's referring to the people. The people are in the bride of Christ, and they're going to live there. Well, that causes some problems for people because the bride is the church, and it's not inclusive of Old Testament believers. Now, the Scriptures very clearly tell us that the bride consists of those that are in the church. So the church is the bride. This has reference to the bride, so it means that only the bride will live there. Well, there's some people who don't like that interpretation because uh, it doesn't seem right. I mean, the Old Testament people and people outside of the church that are believers, that they wouldn't be able to live in the New Jerusalem. So they, they try to make this more inclusive, and so they change the nature of the bride of Christ, and they want to include everybody that's ever believed that they'll be in the bride of Christ. But according to Scripture, there are people that are saved that were saved in the Old Testament, in fact, that are not a part of the bride of Christ, but are considered to be friends of the bridegroom, which is very distinct from the bride. This is what John the Baptist talked about in John 3, uh, verse number 29. He called himself the friend of the bridegroom. And that very clearly tells us that he was not a part of the bride. Now, what John was, was the last Old Testament prophet, And so he stands in the same relationship to the church as all the Old Testament prophets, so they're not a part of the bride of Christ. That's why he called himself a friend of the bridegroom. So everybody before the church is in that category. Well, that begs a question then. Where do they live? Where do all those people live? Well, this is why I started out by telling you that the New Jerusalem is not the entirety of heaven. It's a part of heaven. It's the capital city of heaven. Now, we also have the earth that's been recreated, and people will be able to live on the earth. But the New Jerusalem is a place where, um, the, that's reserved for the bride of Christ, but we're not to think of this like the New Jerusalem is for the elite saints, and then the rest of the environs, heaven and the new earth, that those are for lesser saints. We're not to think of it that way, because there are no classifications like that when you get to heaven. There is no social order when you get to heaven everybody's the same in this sense. But the New Jerusalem is a place that's owned by the people of God, those that are uh, that are in the church, rather. So we're not to think of this as a place where there is restricted access. I mean, the scriptures say that the gates of the city are not shut at all by night. And one of the reasons it says that, because there is no need of protection. You, you shut the city gates for protection. You don't have to worry about that, because there are no more enemies. But Rather, the scripture is really referring to the gates not being shut so that everybody has access to that place. There's not a restricted access for certain saints. And we aren't to think of the New Jerusalem if we are the saints of God that are in the church. We're not to think of it as a place where we're going to go and crawl into our own bed and we have our own space that's marked off and we have a fence that keeps everybody out of our little bitty space, or what wouldn't be little bitty, I think, uh, I believe it was Henry Morris, who calculated, uh, based on some calculations that he did about how many people he thought that were going to be in heaven, and looking at the size of the city of 1,500 mile cube, he said that would mean probably that everybody has their own 75 acres. So some of you that have trouble turning around a truck or whatever, you don't need. You got more than 40 acres. You got 75 to do all the things you want to do in. Well, I don't think that we're really to think about it like that. That we've got our place that's just marked off. That's our space. It is a place that's reserved for us. It's a place that's owned for us, and we are going to live there. But that it doesn't mean that other people don't, other uh, people that have been saved don't have access to the city. So it's the inheritance of the church, and that's one of the blessed privileges that we have, that we live in this time when Christ started this new organism that he calls the church. Well, there are a lot of unanswered questions about this, and and I don't think that any of us can be so dogmatic and say, I have all the answers. I know what exactly what it's going to be like. This is the way it will be, and the way I say is the way that it is. I can't say that. We just don't know enough about it. So we have other questions like, when a person dies and they're a believer now, somebody in our church that dies, do they go and live in the new Jerusalem now? Well, that's a good question. And the only answer that I can bring you from Scripture is that it appears that they have to wait. John, uh, Jesus said in John 14, I will come again And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So it seems like the time for the occupation of the New Jerusalem will be at the time of the Rapture. That's when bodies are raised. And then there's another question we might ask: Well, what about the Millennial Jerusalem? Are we we're going to reign with Christ in the earthly kingdom? So how do we get from heaven back to the earth? And why would we even want to come to heaven back to the earth? Well, God's going to give us the ability to do that. He'll give us permission to travel uh, between the two places, and we'll travel at the command of the Savior at will, whichever it might be. If he needs us for some administrative purpose, then he'll call us here. We can travel back and forth because heaven is a real place. Heaven is out there somewhere, and he's going to give us the ability to traverse that distance in a way that's completely unknown to modern science. You know, it's remarkable that scientists are are trying to figure out how, how the universe came into being. How did it come into existence? And they propose all these different kinds of theories and how all these different things work. And they still don't get it. They've never been able to figure this out. And I don't know if any of those people are going to make it to heaven. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that somebody who does not believe that God created the existing heaven and earth would ever be able to live in this new place that God's going to create called the new heaven and the new earth. That's hard for me to believe. I think these are things that you have to, have to receive, the truth of God's word. But you think about scientists as they try to figure all these things out, and what if they were able to see what John saw? Here they see people traversing this, this space between heaven and earth, however great that it might be, and they do it faster than the speed of thought. Well, now they're going to have to throw out all their theories. Throw out Ein, what Einstein said when he, I think Einstein said that you, you'd never be able to travel beyond the speed of light. That's, a, that's an impossibility. Is anybody a scientist here that knows if that's true? Uh, that's what I've heard. But we don't worry about that. Scientists are going to be just dumbfounded trying to figure out things that God has done. And we notice something about John here. He doesn't ask, How did you do that? How's that possible? What are the physics of this? John never asked questions like that. God just did it, and God will do it. And that's all we do is just take him at his word, believe him just like he said. Well, there's another thought that I want to add this evening. Uh, The next major point is one that I'm not going to tackle this evening because it'll take us too long to get to that. And uh, So I'm going to give you another point. I, I want you to have time to get home and watch reality TV or whatever it is you do. I uh, don't want you to miss that educational experience to talk about heaven, that's for sure. You know, that's, that's a funny thing too, isn't it? When you, you're going to preach about heaven. And you might announce that you're going to preach about heaven. Why aren't pews filled up? Why aren't there people anxious to hear what heaven's going to be like? You wonder about that? I mean, if Christians really believed that heaven was real, wouldn't they be here to hear about it? Why wouldn't we have every member of the church here to hear about this? That's a puzzling thing to me. You know, every time I bend over, I realize I sure wish heaven was close. I mean, I, I, I have all the encouragement that I need to get to heaven every time I feel my aching back and all the problems that we go through. Well, thirdly, let, let me just try to finish this very quickly for you. It is a harmonious city. This city that comes down from heaven is a harmonious city. And I mean by that that everybody is there for the same reason. And we talked a little bit about that in the last message. The activity of heaven is worship, and everybody wants to do the same thing. There is no place on earth, no city on earth, where everybody wants to do the same thing. There is no harmony in the world. It was Billy Davis that wrote uh, several years ago, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Years ago when I was... uh, leading choir when I was quite a bit younger, that's sure what I wished I could do was teach them all to sing in perfect harmony. It's not something I can do. It's not anything that anybody can do, and neither is anything else that there is in this world that we do. We're never in perfect harmony. But when you get to heaven, everybody is there for the same purpose. They have the same thing in mind. There are no Republicans and Democrats, and there is no tax party or any of that. Everybody has the same mind. There is perfect peace, and God reigns eternal. And that is another reason, folks, for us to be heavenly-minded. You know, politicians can save their breath about peace on earth. The only one who brings peace is Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk a little bit about that next Sunday morning. There's a paradox that we find in Matthew chapter 10 concerning peace. And you kind of have to work your way through that to realize that until the king of kings comes, king of kings comes, and he enforces a peace, ruling with a rod of iron, or that he changes everybody, that he has an entire group of people with new hearts, in a new city, with a new home, there's not going to be any perfect harmony until that happens. So we think about what a beautiful place that the new Jerusalem will be. I mean, John gives a description a little bit later in this chapter, and the, and the features of the city are just simply fascinating. And it's great to think about the perfection of heaven. We ought to think more about that than we do. Stop thinking so much about the cares of life and think about the peace that we'll have in heaven. Now, just one more statement, because I don't want anybody to go away tonight wondering, well, you've talked a lot about heaven. How do I get there? I mean, all this talk about heaven, how do I get there? Well, I don't want anybody to leave here tonight not knowing about this place and how to get there. And the answer to the question is only one way. You can only get to heaven one way. And it comes from that same passage of Scripture that we talked about a moment ago in John 14 where Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And he said right after that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so if you want to go to heaven, there is no way but Jesus Christ. Now, the world's religions, any other religion that you want to think of, there are no alternate routes to get to heaven. What you must do is that you must agree with God. You must repent of your sins. You must agree that you are a sinner. And you must agree that you can do nothing to help yourself. And then you put all of your hope your confidence, your reliance upon Jesus Christ to take you to heaven. You believe that he died to pay for your sins, that he arose from the grave for your justification. You surrender yourself to him, and he will save you. And then if you do that, you have this great promise that one day you will see the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have the time to talk about this great subject tonight and, and then for the coming weeks as we think about all the descriptions that John gives us of heaven. Lord, we just pray that your people would be looking forward to this and Lord, we just ask you to touch any someone's heart here tonight. If they're not saved, if they don't really, have never received you as Savior and, and they're not yet headed for that place, may they realize what a wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And the only way that we'll ever be able to see God in this, in this place called heaven is to receive Christ as Savior. So, Lord, we pray that you bless our people. Give us encouragement. Give us hope in these times. Help us to think more about heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing, please.